Thanks for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange, visit www.theexchange.cc or you can visit us for one of our Sunday gatherings each Sunday at 9.15 and 11 a.m. I wonder how many of you remember the joy of uh, Christmas as a child. Man, it's just kind of something you want to bottle up, right? Man, just the joy of Christmas as a child for many people. Christmas is the most anticipated uh, season of the year. It's the most anticipated holiday of the year. And so many people look forward to Christmas. It seems like especially children. I remember um, when I was a child growing up at my parents' house, and it seems like the very first time that the Christmas present was wrapped, the very first one that was wrapped and put under the tree, it became my one sole mission. It was the one thing that was on my mind to try to figure out what was in that present? And the first thing I want to know is, was it for me? All right? Don't act like you didn't ever go there, okay? Don't judge me. But the first thing I want to know was, is that for me? And then as I was kind of always figure out a way to kind of sneak over and take a peek at the tag to see, is it my name on there? And like, mom would get onto me and then I'd get in trouble. But I would figure out my way to get over there. And if it was for me, if it had my name written on it, then immediately the one question that I could not get out of my mind was, what was in it? Like, what was in that present that had my name on it wrapped underneath the tree? And so you kind of like did the whole shaking thing. All right, any shakers in the room? All right, okay, thanks for being honest. You're in church today. And so we would, man, I would go over and I would just kind of look at the shape, uh, how the present was wrapped, the size of it. Like, is it that thing that I asked for? I wanted to know what was wrapped underneath the tree that had my name on it. And perhaps you've got kids that are like that, or maybe when you were a kid, you were like that, if you're really honest, okay? But you know, so much of our culture has made so much of Christmas about the act of giving gifts, right? The act of giving and receiving and and opening gifts. And I think it's awesome. I think there's nothing wrong with giving gifts and sharing gifts to express our love for each other. But you know, as I thought about this week, that just that act of giving gifts, there's so much anticipation and excitement built around in that moment leading up to the actual opening of the gifts, isn't there? Like, I mean, kids just cannot contain themselves. They're pestering mom and dad. We don't want to read the Christmas story. We don't want to stand around and eat dinner at the table. Like, let's just open the presents. There's so much anticipation in that moment. But I want us to think just for a second, what if Christmas came and the gifts were all wrapped and they're like neatly placed under the tree and they got the bows and the tags and all that on them, but we never opened the presents. Like what if the celebration of Christmas came and went, but we never opened the gifts? You know, I think we could probably all agree pretty uh, easily, like a majority vote, that like that would be the most unusual of Christmases, that the presents would be there, but they would never be unwrapped. But here's what I want us to begin to kind of think about today. I think the very same thing happens And it's dangerous for this to potentially happen, maybe even again this year, that we would approach the season of Christmas, one of the most anticipated weeks and days and seasons of the year, and we could never fully unwrap the season for what it's completely meant to be. That we would approach the most anticipated time of the year for many people and never unwrap it for what it's intended to be. And so what we're going to do over the next few weeks together is we're going to dive into a series that we're calling Unwrapped. And here's the mission in these few weeks together, is that we want to take the Christmas story that many of you, I'm sure, have heard over and over and over before, and I want us to kind of view it through a little bit of a different perspective. And I want us to begin to unwrap, if you will, the gift of Christmas, maybe in a way that you never have before. So I want you to go with me. If you got a copy of Scripture, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. I'd love for you to track along, whether you got a hard copy or digital copy um, on your phone. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, we'll put the verses up behind me um, on the screen just for you to track along with where we'll be in Matthew chapter 1 today. 
You know, over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at some of the main characters in the Christmas story. And as I begin to kind of lay out this passage and begin to look at it this week, I realize that there's really two different approaches that we could take over the next few weeks, including to today. The first approach that we could take is we could look at some of these main characters of Christmas, like uh, Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and some of the others. We could look at them and we could see their reaction and their response to what God was doing and to the situations that were happening. They, they were filled with fear and they had faith and they walked in obedience and some of them sacrificed. We could see all of those things and then we could allow their response to inspire us. We could take that approach. And I don't know that we would be completely wrong in taking that approach. But there's a second approach that I think we could take. And that is that we could look at this Christmas story and even look at the people and the events that happen in some of the passages that we've read many, many times before. And rather than looking at the character's response to what God was doing, we can begin to look at the underlying narrative that God is writing about how he's using these people and how he's using these events to write a story in history to ultimately bring eternal and lasting hope, not only in this time, but also for you and me. And so today we're going to look at the person of Joseph, the character of Joseph, and some of the events surrounding him. But more than looking at Joseph's response, my hope for us today is that we're going to see the gift that God is giving us, that he's laying out for us in Matthew chapter 1. So let's go to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 18. This is what Matthew writes. He says, this is how... The birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Now, I want us to stop right here for a moment. We're going to keep going in just a second. But what I want us to see in these 11 words is the foundation of the need for the gift of Christmas. If we're about to unwrap this gift and see what is this thing that God is bringing us and giving to us, we got to figure out why do we even need it. And so right here, I think we see the foundation of the need for the gift of Christmas. Matthew's about to tell us the story, and so he sets it up this way. And he says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Now, notice he's very specific to not just say Jesus, not to say Jesus the Son of God, but he calls Jesus the Messiah. Now, if you look up this word Messiah, you'll find that it means Savior. And in that meaning and unpacking that right there, I believe we begin to see the foundation for why we're going to need the gift of Christmas. And that is this right here, that God gifted us Jesus as a savior because we were and are a people in need of saving. That God gifted us Jesus as a savior because we are and were a people in need of saving. Uh, last weekend, uh, my wife and I had the chance to go to Montreal, Canada uh, to help train some Canadian church planners. And it was a really cool opportunity that was offered to us. We'd never been to Canada before. And man, we love church planners. And so we, we took the chance to go there. Now, my main takeaway from Canada, just real quick side note, is that like, it's, it's just cold. Like, I mean, it's ridiculous cold. If you don't like cold, don't go there. Right now, it feels like summer compared to what we were in at Montreal. So that's my one take on Canada. But our, our journey there took us on a plane ride. We went to Atlanta because every great flight goes through Atlanta. And so then we went to Atlanta and then Atlanta to Montreal. And so that was about a three hour flight from Atlanta to Montreal. And so as we board that flight, you know, I'm not one of those guys, I don't fly a whole lot, but I'm not one of those guys that's like the get up and move around the plane kind of guy. I'm more of like the guy that like tightens my seatbelt and prays a lot kind of guy. And so we're on the flight. It's about a three hour flight and um, I don't move around a whole lot, but about an hour and a half into the flight, I realize I'm like, 
I gotta go use the facility. Like I just, I'm gonna have to get up. I gotta move, okay? I drank a little bit too much before I got on the plane. I realized I'm making some of you uncomfortable. I'm not going any deeper than that, all right? But like, I'm like, I gotta get up. I gotta go take care of business. And so I get up and I, I go to the restroom. And if you've ever had just the joy and the pleasure of going to an airplane restroom, you realize like there's not a lot of real estate in those things. Like it apparently got spread out to the other areas of the plane, but the bathroom got really cheated. And so uh, I don't know, the bathroom's pretty important. Uh, but in that moment, like I go and like I do what I got to do and I turn around which literally like you turn around, and that's the door right there it's like dropping a commode in a phone booth is what it's like and so I turn around and the door's right there and so like I'm done and I'm ready to go back to my seat but there's only one problem like the, the door wouldn't open to the bathroom and so yeah you laugh and so like I kind of pushed it and you know kind of form tackled it there with my shoulder like that and nothing like it wasn't moving and so then I'm starting I'm like okay maybe I'm trying to read the directions on the doors like English and Spanish I'm like just tell me how to get out and so I realized I'm like maybe what happened was that I pushed the latch to actually lock rather than unlock and so you've done that before in the stall and so I slide it over and push it again it's even harder. I was like, okay, that's not the option and so then I slide it back across I'm literally like I'm, I'm giving it this right here okay and it ain't moving and at this point, it's not a funny joke anymore, okay? Like, the temperature in the restroom is going up like this, okay? I'm beginning to sweat, and for the first time in my life, I begin to identify with what it feels like to be claustrophobic, all right? That restroom felt like it was closing in, and I'll just be honest, okay? At that moment, I was ready to go Chuck Norris on that thing. I was ready to rip the door off the hinges. I realized that the TSA guy was probably going to come check me out, all right? But I wasn't going down in the restroom, and at that moment, it felt like this is how it's going to end for me, like 30,000 feet in the air in a phone booth that they call a bathroom. And so I'm knocking on the door, like trying to get people's attention. But the plane's so loud, I'm kind of up in the front area, and the plane's so loud, they can't hear me. <clears throat> and so I'm, like, I'm literally going to last option. And so I am pushing on the door, and I'm realizing I can't get the top to move, but I can get about middle way to the bottom to open up, like, just that much right there, just enough to, like, see out, like, just to go, there's hope, but I don't have it. <laughs> and so, all right, I'm about to get real honest with you, okay? All right, so I'm on my knees... Clothes are fully on. I'm on my knees, pushing with everything I've got, and the door's open just this much, and a stewardess walks in front of the door, and she looks down at me on my knees in the phone booth that they call a restroom, and I go, ma'am, I'm stuck. <laughs> and she was so kind, and she was so helpful, and she like came around, and I don't know what she did, but it was some kind of like Jackie Chan karate chop thing. And she like hit that door, and it, it, it like, you know, it folded, and it opened. And I came out, and she had every right to like, I don't know, take my man card and make fun of me, kick me off the plane. But she didn't. And, and it was great. And like, so as I'm walking back to my seat, all right, with that life-scarring experience that I will carry with me for as long as I'm alive, I look at my wife, who has been watching this rescue mission from a distance. <laughs> And she is laughing uncontrollably. And she's doing nothing just like you right now. And I tell you that story, certainly not with great pride or any dignity, but with great humility to admit to you that in that moment, I was a man in need of saving. I was 30,000 feet in the air and the restroom was shrinking and I was sweating and I was hopeless. There was no way out. 
right? And just realistically, okay, I realized it was probably not going to end that way. Somebody was coming to get me. But here's why I tell you that story. Because I believe as we dive into the beginning of Matthew chapter 1 and we open up the gift and the story of Christmas, I believe what Matthew's trying to help us see is that the foundation of the need for the gift is that you and I are a people who are in need of saving. We are people in need of a Savior, and therefore God gifts us Jesus as a Savior because He saw us in our place of hopelessness, and He's just the kind of God that does not leave us there, but He offers us a way out. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 states it this way. It says, But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. And Scripture says that our iniquities, our sins, you and our shortcomings have separated us from God. You see, sin immediately labels us and categorizes us in a category of unrighteous, and therefore it separates us from a holy and perfect and righteous God. And it leaves us in a place, if you will, of hopelessness. And there was nothing that I could do in that moment to get out of that bathroom. Like, I thought, I was like, I could text my wife. I'm like, I'm 30,000 feet in the air. My phone plan is not working. And I'm like, I could form tackle the door, but that's not working. There's nothing I could do in that moment to get out. And it's the same way for every single one of us and the issue of sin in our life. There is nothing that we can do to separate ourselves from that wrestle, right? We, we can't live good enough lives, all right? We can't be generous enough. We can't help people enough. You can't show up to church enough to override the sin issue of your life. However, the beauty of Christmas and that we're going to uncover today and throughout this series is that our God did not leave us in the place of hopelessness, but he saw us there and he loved us so much that he offers us a gift of a Savior, all right? And the reality is that when we live life apart from Christ, we are a people who live in one of two places. When we live life apart from Christ, we either live in a place of hopelessness or we live in a place of a false sense of hope. And for some of you, if you were real honest today, like you rolled in today, maybe your first time, maybe you've been coming for years, and you rolled in today and your life could best be described as a place of hopelessness, right? Maybe you are not caught in a restroom 30,000 feet in the air, but maybe for you, you feel like you're 30,000 feet deep in the hole of life, surrounded by a whole slew of past mistakes or emptiness or loneliness or brokenness. Or maybe you've been overwhelmed by an addiction that you just can't kick. And when you walked in today, what best describes you is you are in a place of hopelessness. But I think there's a second group of people, and when we're apart from Christ, not only do we find ourselves in a place of hopelessness, but perhaps in an area that I believe could even be more dangerous is there's a place of a false sense of hope. See, and if you're in that place for you, it's a little harder to identify because for you, life's not falling apart. Like, it doesn't seem hopeless at this point. There's some things that are even seemingly working in your favor. But if you got really gut-level honest today, if you were really honest, you would have to say that the majority of your hope is really not in Christ, but it is more so in the things of this world. Maybe it's in your career. 
Maybe it's in your family. It's in your relationships. Maybe it's in the pursuit of getting more stuff or more money. Maybe it's in having a certain social status or being a, having a certain appearance so that you're approved and accepted in a certain way. But here's what I'm going to be just straight up honest with you. All right, if I can give you a little gut check today. That is a false sense of hope. Why is that? Because ultimately the relationships will end. Ultimately the money will run out. Ultimately the image will fade. Ultimately the status will not matter anymore. And for many people, even many well-meaning people, I believe they're walking in a false sense of hope. But you see, the first 11 words of Matthew 1.18 that we just read are such an incredible intro to the Christmas story because they lay the foundation and they give us the gut check to ask ourselves the question and come to the reality of, do I realize that I'm a person in need of saving? I'm a person in need of a rescue. So the foundation that we've got to realize and stand on first today is that we as a people are in need of saving, but God loves us so much that he sent Jesus as a savior to rescue us. But Matthew keeps going. Go back to Matthew chapter one. Let's read verse 18 again and see what he says next. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said this, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her, the child in her, is from the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And in these four verses, we begin to see a lot of details of the story. And we see Mary becoming pregnant in the most unlikely of ways by the Holy Spirit. And then we see like Joseph, he's freaking out a little bit as most all of us would. And he's like, all right, we're going to break off that engagement. That's a little fruity for me. And the angel speaks to him. He's like, no, Joseph, God's doing something here. And then the final piece that we just read there is is the angel looking at Joseph or speaking to Joseph in the dream and saying, you're to call this child Jesus. You're to call this child Jesus. But here in these verses, I believe as we dig in a little bit more, the first overarching truth of the gift of Christmas that I want us to unwrap is that even in the chaos, even in the chaos, God can bring redemption. Even in the chaos, God can bring redemption. In verse 20 that we just read, the angel greets Joseph in his dream. And did you read what it said? It says a very specific address. It says, Joseph, son of David. And again, when you're typically reading the Christmas story, all right, Christmas Eve, Christmas at Grandma's house, like you're reading the story, you just read right over that phrase. But there's so much significance and hope, I believe, packed into that address. Joseph, son of David. See, today when we started reading a while ago, and I told you to go to Matthew 1, where did we start? We started in verse 18. But if you look back at the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, here's what you're going to find. A long list of names that are, one, really hard to pronounce, and two, probably don't have a lot of significance or meaning to you. But if you've ever studied Matthew 1 before, if you've ever realized what God is writing to us there, he's giving us the family tree of Jesus. He's giving us the earthly family lineage, like so-and-so is kin to so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so is kin to so-and-so. And right here, there are 42 generations, all the way from Abraham, all the way down to Jesus. And I'm not going to break down all those names or even try to pronounce all of them for you. But here's what I want us to see. 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had anything but a perfect earthly family. He had anything but a perfect earthly family lineage. Here's what I mean by that. Look in verse 3. It says the names Judah and Tamar are mentioned. Now, the story with these two from the Old Testament is that Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Okay, that makes sense. Here's where it gets weird. However, Tamar ultimately has Judah's child. All right, that's awkward. Hopefully that's not happening in your family. But if you know the story, what happens? Judah got Tamar pregnant because she was disguised as a prostitute. And then when she comes back to the camp, and here she is great with child, Judah calls for her to be stoned. Oh, that is, until he realizes, whoops, nope, that one's mine. This is the family tree of Jesus. Well, then skip down to verse 5, and Matthew mentions Boaz and Rahab. In the Old Testament, if you've read their story, we read where Rahab, also a prostitute, who becomes the mother of Boaz. And then Boaz, who is a Hebrew, he steps in and marries Ruth, who is a Moabite. Well, in that day, Hebrews and Moabites didn't cross. But Boaz steps into this relationship. Then there's King David further down. Oh, yeah, you heard anything about his story? It includes lust, adultery, and murder. However, what does he do? He ultimately becomes the father of Solomon who also is in the story in verse 7. And then many of the descendants of Solomon, as you read from 7 all the way down to 18, many of those descendants, their final epitaph in Scripture is, so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord. Like, isn't that awesome for somebody to say that about you at your funeral? Like, put this in my will, make sure you... But that's the description of many of the descendants in the line of the family lineage that led to Jesus Christ. And our God looks at that story, that family tree, and he says, in the middle of that chaos, I'm going to insert and introduce my son, who'll be the savior of the world. And the reason I believe that that brings so much hope to us today is because many of us could describe our lives as chaotic, couldn't we? And I'm not talking about your schedule in December when you got 100 Christmas parties and kids events and all that. And I'm not even talking about how your house looks right now. But I'm talking about the chaos of our life when we try to live life under our own strength and our own wisdom apart from Christ. And perhaps for some of you today, your life pursuit has left you with brokenness from a failed marriage. Or maybe it's left you in depression from repeated mistakes or emptiness in a battle with addiction. Or maybe you're just worn out today. Because you've been living so much of your life trying to be good enough and trying to be accepted, trying to fit in. And today you're just worn out. See, I think at one point or another, if we just all got really honest, we all find our lives in chaos, overwhelmed with the chaos of life. But we can't miss the fact that the chaos of our lives ultimately points back to the foundation we laid a second ago, that we're a people that are overwhelmed by sin and in desperate need saving. But the hope today, the good news today, is that the God of Christmas and the God of our lives, if you trust him, is a God who is not intimidated by chaos. He is not overwhelmed by the past or the mistakes or the chaos of your life. In fact, it's in the chaos when he typically specializes in doing his very best work. And Paul gives us insight into that in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Check out what Paul writes in the New Testament. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, 
Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Well, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Check this out. While we were still sinners, or maybe more appropriately said, while we were still in the chaos, Christ died for us. He counted us worth it. And the beauty and the hope of our God is that even in the chaos that we create, and even in the chaos of this life, he steps in and offers redemption to those who trust him. He gives grace for a second chance for those who choose to follow him. And whether you're in Christ today or whether you're apart from Christ, that should be a message either of a reminder or a message of overwhelming truth and hope and joy today that in the middle of your brokenness, in the middle of whatever darkness, in the middle of whatever hurt or pain or struggle, God specializes in bringing redemption in the middle of the chaos. And I think that's the first kind of corner of the gift today as we unwrap it that God can bring redemption even in the chaos but go back to our passage check out verse 22 Matthew chapter 1 verse 22 says all this everything that we just read all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet so as Matthew kind of finishes describing what the angel says to Joseph he kind of then transitions with this statement he gives this transitional statement he says hey all this it took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet all right. And here's the second piece of the gift that I want us to unwrap. And the second truth to see today is that God is fully faithful to his word. God is fully faithful to his word. Now, Matthew just referenced a prophet. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the prophet Isaiah, who hundreds of years before in Isaiah chapter seven writes this. OK, Old Testament here, Isaiah seven, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a son. Here's the son. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now again, let's remember, these were words written hundreds of years before this moment here in the New Testament where a virgin girl named Mary gave birth to a son who became a savior. And although Isaiah was the prophet who recorded these words, the prophecy itself was spoken from God. And here it is made clear that God not only is a promise maker, but God is also a promise keeper. And he is fully faithful to his word. You see, for Matthew, as he writes this in this moment, he had no printed copy of scripture. He didn't open up his Zondervan Bible. In this moment, the only reference Matthew had was what had been written by the prophets in the years before him. And he's watched for hundreds of years to try to see this come true. And here in this moment, Matthew gets to see the reality of what Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before, that God is not only a promise maker, but he's a promise keeper. And when he says something, he's fully faithful to his word. But you see, what we have to realize is that many times we look at this story of Christmas, that Jesus' birth was predicted down to the very last detail. And when Jesus was born, it was the fulfillment of not one, not two, not three, but thousands of Old Testament prophecies pointed to this, the birth of a Savior. And these were prophecies spoken 400 to 1,000 years before they were fulfilled in Jesus. And throughout all of this time, God was faithful to his promise. And I don't know about you, but it's difficult enough for me to predict what's going to happen next week. But for God... 
to look centuries ahead and call what would happen proves his sovereignty and his faithfulness to his word. And maybe for some of you today, that's the reminder that you need to hear as you kick off the holiday season. Maybe as you step into the Christmas season, you begin to unwrap the story of Christmas. You need to know that God is completely and entirely faithful to his word in every way. Because maybe for you in the middle of your struggle, in the middle of a place of depression or emptiness or loneliness or the first Christmas season without somebody that's really special to you. And you find yourself in that place of hopelessness today. Maybe you begin to question, can I really trust God? No, I know what everybody says I'm supposed to do. But can I really take him at his word? But can I ask you a question today? Do you believe that the God who prophesied the birth of the Messiah and then hundreds of years later fulfilled it down to the last detail, do you believe that he can take care of you? Do you believe that he cares for you in the middle of your chaos? Do you believe that he is fully faithful to his word, no matter how dark it may seem for you? I love what Proverbs chapter 30 verse 5 says. It says, every word of God is flawless. It doesn't say easy. It doesn't say simple. But every word of God is flawless and he is a shield to those who take refuge in And maybe for a long time, you've wondered and questioned, maybe publicly, maybe really privately, could you really trust and put your faith in the character of God? And here, Matthew screams overwhelmingly, he is fully faithful to his word. And he can be trusted. But then Matthew ends the story in verse 22 through verse 25. And this is what happens next. We'll skip down in that verse and it says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that ends the dream. And Joseph woke up and he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And he took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. And so Matthew kind of sums up, again, that verse 14 from Isaiah chapter 7. And then we see Joseph's heart begin to change. And he's like, oh man, I'm not not breaking the engagement. I'm stepping into it. And he, in full obedience and in full faith, he takes Mary in as his wife. And then he gives this child the name Jesus, just as the angel had asked. But the final truth that I want us to unwrap are the words of the prophet Isaiah that ultimately Matthew repeats here that gives Jesus another name. And we read it just a second ago. In verse 22, it says, they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And here's this final truth and the way we'll kind of unwrap it today is that the holy and sovereign God in this moment became the personal and present God. The holy and sovereign and majestic God became he himself the personal and present God. I wonder if you ever had the chance to, uh, to meet somebody who's famous, all right? Uh, man, I've, that's happened just a few times in my life before. And, and I, whether I meet somebody, it's like maybe an actor, somebody that's going to be on TV or, or an artist that sings songs or maybe it's an athlete that plays sports. I've found that it shapes the way, it changes the way that I see that person, 
right? So if I, if I see them again later on TV, or maybe I watch an athlete play a sporting event, maybe they're on TV, or I'm in the stands and they're on the field, or maybe if I hear an artist and I hear their songs on the radio, or, or I see them in concert, it changes the way I see and view that person. Because when I see them again, what happens is my mind goes back to that moment where they were there with me in the flesh, right? When they were there personal and present for me. And, I, and even though they might not know my name or remember me, there's, it feels like there's a relationship there because I remember them when they were personal and present. And I think what Isaiah and then here Matthew as he repeats the prophecy, I think what they're trying to help us understand is that same emotion that the holy and the sovereign God came as Emmanuel to be personal and present with us and even more so with you. And I love how the message translation kind of sums up John's description of Jesus coming. In verse one, verse, or chapter 1, verse 14 of John, the message translation says this, the Word, capital W, meaning Jesus, became flesh and blood, and check this out, and moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that cool? And John says, we saw the glory with our own eyes. Like he was right there. He was the one of a kind glory. He was like the father, like the son. He was generous inside and out. True from start to finish. And scripture says, Jesus, although fully God, chose to make himself one of us and move into the neighborhood. And Jesus became hope in the flesh. He became hope in the flesh. Because you see, if you know anything about Jewish history or what leads up to this moment, the Jews had been living with so much expectation that a Messiah was coming. They believed it was going to happen, and for hundreds of years, they waited. Can you imagine how many of them begin to doubt? I don't know that's really going to happen. And others would say, no, they've said it's going to happen. The Messiah's coming. But here's what they believed. They believed the Messiah was coming. They didn't know who, they didn't know how, but they believed that he was coming to bring them freedom from the rule and the law of the Romans. And they were like, man, if he could just break us free from their rule over us, we're no longer captives. And although for hundreds of years, thousands of Jews waited for a Messiah, a Savior, to rescue them from Roman rule, God was working the whole time behind the scenes, orchestrating a narrative to not only bring freedom from Roman rule, but to bring freedom and victory for you and for them and for me over the power of sin and over the grip of death. But here's the crazy plan. Here's the crazy thing about the plan of God. God was sovereign. He was all-knowing. He was infinite. And He knew completely the price that would have to be paid. He knew very well the sacrifice that would have to be made for the freedom of his people. And I love that in that moment, instead of trying to defeat sin and death through an alternate route, instead of subcontracting it out to somebody else, instead of trying to choose another Messiah, another way out, the sovereign and holy God of the universe inserted himself into the story. And the sovereign and holy God became the personal and present God. And Emmanuel became not only God with us, but he became God for us. And the words of the angel 
became fully true. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people. Maybe not in the way you thought, but in an old, much greater way. He will save his people from their sins. And the perfect Savior became a Savior for the imperfect. And the King of Righteousness stepped into the chaos to bring redemption. And I don't know where you are in your journey today, whether you find yourself in a place of hopelessness, whether you're in a moment of false hope, or maybe you've become a recipient of the hope of Jesus. But the joy today, the hope today, is that the sovereign and holy God stepped into the story to become personal and present for you and for me. Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange or to find out how you can connect with or support what God is doing, visit www.theexchange.cc. Now go, be the church, and give life.